Hey everyone and welcome to Risky Business, your weekly information security news and current affairs show. My name's Patrick Gray and uh, yeah, sorry about the oddly timed podcast release. Uh, As my Twitter followers would know, I spent last week down with the Rona. I caught the vid. Uh, My number was up and uh, yeah, it certainly feels like coronavirus. Uh, the coronavirus is mopping up everyone who didn't catch it already, right? So just uh, those, we're, we're part of the long tail and it's ripping through us right now. Uh, I didn't have such a bad time with it. A uh, couple of days with a sore throat. Otherwise, I just felt felt a bit crappy. Uh, so yeah, I did take a few days off to recover, which has kicked the show into this week. But we are back into it now. And uh, this week's show is brought to you by Elastic. And uh, we've got a great sponsor interview this week talking about Elastic's teardown on some really Really interesting uh, Linux malware an APT has been using. It's called uh, BPF Door, and uh, Jake King and Colson Wilhoit uh, joined me for that interview. And uh, I did let it run a bit long because it is uh, very interesting stuff. That is coming up later on. But first up, of course, it is time for a check of the security news that we missed while I was down uh, with the plague. And um, Adam, the United States government is saying a lot of things about doing things, but not saying what they're doing. Yes, we saw General Paul Nakasone confirming that the US has, quote, conducted a series of operations, special ones perhaps, uh, in support of Ukraine. We don't know what Cybercom has been doing. Um, we've seen a bunch of uh, stories about you know them hunting forward and you know, having Cybercom NSA people uh, out, you know, deployed in a bunch of countries, helping people hunt uh, adversaries, helping you know, spot Russian and other you know, nations tooling and then burn it in advance. Seems like a reasonable thing to do. But yes, we don't really know exactly what they've been up to uh, in Ukraine and really how interesting it is. Yeah, and it, and it caused a bit of consternation, right, which caused the White House press secretary to come back and say, no, no, this is all within our policy towards Russia, you know, which yeah. gives you the impression <laughs> they're not hacking HVAC systems in Russian buildings and making them explode. Uh, they're probably maybe just trying to go forward and grab some tooling from Russian adversaries and fairly typical stuff, which begs the question why Nakasone felt the need to say something in the first place. <laughs> yeah, I guess it's always nice to be seen doing something, but yeah, I the sorts of things I imagine them doing are the sorts of things I would have already imagined them doing without him saying it, uh, if that makes sense. So yeah, we didn't really learn anything new, but a few people did. You know, There was a bit of hand-wringing uh, and some infosec Twitter threads, as you would expect, but not anything particularly concrete we can take away from it. Yeah, now sticking with the theme of the US government just sort of saying stuff, you, you would remember <laughs> that when this whole thing of shields up, right, the Ukraine thing kicked off and the US government told people, hey, put your shields up. And, you know, the thinking was that if you were extra careful that day, uh, Russia wouldn't hack you, right? Um To me, this always just seemed like a really strange thing to say, uh, because it's 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 not, you know, it's it's always good advice. It's sort of like saying, like, if you're running an airline, it's like contacting the maintenance crews for the planes and saying, hey, do you think you could tighten the bolts on the planes at the moment? There's going to be a storm. When really, maybe the the bolts should be tightened all of the time. Anyway, we've got a piece here from CyberScoop <laughs> written by Jen Easterly, who's of CISA, uh, and Chris Inglis, the National Cyber Director in the United States. And the headline, I shit you not, is Shields Up, Colin, the new normal in cyberspace. So what was the point of the whole thing, right? If it's the new normal... <laughs> So your shields are permanently up. Okay, I got it. That was helpful. Thanks. <laughs> and it actually does address the question, like in italics even, when will we be able to put our shields down? 
Never. And the answer is never. You don't get to put the shield down. They should have been up the whole time. Yeah, just uh, like so the, the bolts on the aeroplane should have been tight the whole time. <laughs> yes. Oh, dear. So to um, me, I mean, this this piece here just to me kind of proves my point that the whole thing's just sort of silly, you know? I mean, silly, but also, you know, I guess if it gets the job done, like if people put their shields up or, you know, someone got told to put their shields up or give them more budget for shields, then maybe it was worth something. But... It, it, it does seem like somewhat strange messaging overall. Yeah. No. I, I hope uh, it worked, though. Like, whatever gets the job done. Yeah. 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 Okay. Fine. <laughs> anyway. Outcomes-based policy. That's what we've got here. Now, if you want to look at a uh, country where they're getting serious about cyber regulation, look no further <laughs> than Russia, my friend, because uh, there has been a flurry of regulations and all sorts of stuff being, uh, being proposed. Uh, item number one on the agenda is to maybe stop the civil ser- servants and the politicians from using WhatsApp and Telegram. Uh, this is some <laughs> reporting from Commissant that, uh, that Catalan, look, Catalan Campanu, who writes our, our, uh, our news newsletter three times a week, uh, Risky Biz News, if you haven't subscribed, go do that already. Uh, he, he has got his eyes all over the Russian press. And so we've got quite a few pieces from the Russian media to talk about this week. But yeah, the first one is uh, Russia is encouraging civil servants and politicians and whatnot to move over to, crea- to using messaging apps created by VK. Yes, and I can certainly imagine like using messaging platforms from, you know, foreign adversaries, perhaps not a super great choice. And it's good that they have some domestic infrastructure to use. Um, the piece that, um, that Catalan dug up from Commissant uh, also said that uh, like press calls from the Russian presidential spokesman uh, had actually been organized through ICQ. Mm. Uh, because, of course, that was bought by VK many, 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 many moons ago. <laughs> uh, and so it's good for them that they have a, you know, a, a competing domestic messaging program that they can fall back on. Um, I'm, you know, wonder if my ICQ number is still live. I could go and get those, subscribe to fresh updates from the Russian government. But yeah, you can absolutely imagine what a strange place it is to be, right? I mean, China has worked for so long on, you know, a great firewall of China and having all sorts of, you know, they've got the scale and the ability to kind of, you know, build this stuff domestically there. Russia, we, I guess we're going to find out whether they do, in fact, you know, have that level of, you know, resourcing available to build stuff because otherwise pretty tough choice when everything runs on Windows. Yeah, I mean, 20 years ago, people who worked in tech uh, would ridicule China for this idea that they were going to censor the internet. But yes. the thing is, yeah. they kept at it and it's, proof that if you keep it something long enough Adam you can do it you can achieve (laughs) (laughs) yes they did they took it they they did take that to the moon they did a very good job of it now whether Russia can do it as well as you say when they can't import semiconductors yes so this was a conversation we were having uh, (laughs) before we hit record which is one of these other uh, mandates that come has come down is for uh, better collection of subscriber information for Russian authorities, right? So they were they were kind of doing full take, and now they're like, okay, that's too messy. <laughs> Can we have something better sorted, please? Is that the is that the gist of it? Yeah, this is a, an update to like the lawful intercept requirements, where they have discovered apparently that just having full take of everything from your telco is actually kind of hard to work with, and so they've published some requirements that are going to require lawful intercept vendors to be able to kind of break out email you know, into something that looks like email that they can ingest in through their existing processing pipelines, similarly collecting call data and call uh, metadata in ways that they can then use and specifically instead calling of just things giving like... Them, instead of just giving them a login to like some storage array full of PCAPs. <laughs> yeah, and then they have to go parse the like voiceover Wi-Fi calling or whatever. Yeah. So they, they're, they're going to require a bunch of pre-processing for lawful intercept, which, you know, it's kind of funny in a way because... Um, you know, intelligence agencies had long built their pipelines around ingesting quite structured, 
you know, metadata and email contents and things. And now, you know, when they went to full take, there was a lot of work to try and turn, you know, turn that firehose back into analyzable data. And the Russians, instead of investing in doing it themselves, like the NSA did, just are going to require the vendors to do it for them, which kind of smart actually. yeah i mean and this is the part where i was saying like earlier before we before we got going which is like good luck building this when you can't buy <laughs> semiconductors right yes like how how are you going to do this if you're a if you're a service provider in russia this is going to be hard when you've got serious restrictions on bringing in new hardware like how do you do it yeah, it, it's a very real problem. And, um, you know, the Russian government has you know, one of the other pieces of regulation is about pushing down a bunch of obligations um, to uh, leaders of companies for breaches in their environment. So there's, you know, there is definitely a, a you will do this thing that we require and it's kind of up to you to go figure out how to do it tough. <laughs> Yeah, it'd be fun telling the FSB, sorry, I couldn't do it because I just, you know, couldn't do yeah. it. Couldn't be done. Yeah. Ran it, ran out of disk, terribly sorry. It's like, well, <laughs> <Yeah. you know. laughs> Off to the salt mines for you. Uh, but yeah, look, uh, as you mentioned too, there is a new requirement coming down that'll make like company directors and whatnot personally responsible for data breaches. So, you know, the, it just feels like there is an awful lot of cyber related um, uh, regulation kicking off in Russia right now. Uh, meanwhile, uh, we've got a Russian provider getting a bit salty uh, in Commissant about those nasty Ukrainians BGP hijacking their routes. So apparently this is a thing that's been happening. You do wonder whether it's technically a BGP hijack when they're doing it on purpose, right? I mean, it's, you know, the Ukrainians are, feel quite within their rights, I guess, to go advertise a bunch of Russian net blocks and break some things. I mean, I don't know that there's necessarily a, like interception going on here. It feels like they just, you know, let's just advertise some IPs and break some Russian stuff, which... Mm kind of understandable um probably not the best use of bgp but you know fair enough if i was a ukrainian isp i would probably be doing that too now speaking of ukrainians breaking stuff uh it turns out there's been a stressor service like a, a typical online booter that was being that was coming highly recommended by you know the the so-called ukraine it army which is I don't know, as best I can tell, a te Telegram channel where people get together to figure out which Russian targets to DOS. Uh, so they had a link to this stressor. And then the FBI has actually just taken this stressor down. And uh, a lot of people are complaining because the FBI took down a stressor that was being used by, you know, for pro-Ukraine purposes, which I, you know, it personally feels a pretty, pretty, you know, dumb complaint, like a stressor <laughs> is a stressor, right? Uh, so if the FBI's taken them down, I'm, I'm sure they have a reason. The really funny part of this story for me, this is a CyberScoop one, was where CyberScoop reached out to the IT army of Ukraine and they said, oh yeah, we were just using IP stress to provide service status services. And, and that was it, right? So <laughs> not, for, not for doing illegal stuff, which is uh, yeah, clearly untrue, but you know, was your reaction the same as mine to this, Adam? Which is like, of course, the FBI is going to take down and, you know, put money in, get DDoS out service. Yeah, um, they uh, and they also have a, a corresponding like data leak site and stuff. So like a pretty average sort of you know of criminal operation. You know, even if they were being used by the IT army for you know like legitimate in the sense that Ukraine's at war with Russia, uh, you know, legitimate in that sense. I mean, you know, the fact that they were doing a whole bunch of other crimes. Not really surprising the FBI was going to take them out. Um, I did think it was funny. The um, uh, one of the the arguments was that the IT army had kind of linked through to it. It's like you know, approved supplier of denial of service or whatever. Uh, and then they said, "Oh yeah, we we actually took them off the Ukrainian language site a, a while ago. We just forgot to update the English one." Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> so you know, all in all, pretty. I mean, I was going to say this seems pretty normal, but we've never had a situation where a national government is you know kind of taking on 
private citizens to do hacking for them in a Telegram channel. So maybe we're, you know, it's, it's a weird new normal, but it didn't <laughs> seem super surprising. It's, the weird it's new normal, I like it's, it. It's yeah. weird how, how fast this has just become the world that we live in, like that the, this is normal Yeah. Now. What do they call it? The new abnormal, right? Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, it's crazy times. Crazy times indeed. Now, look, let's talk about the Mandiant <laughs> drama because I'm, I'd love this. This is just so funny. Uh, Mandiant drops a report. Uh, when was this? June 2nd, right? Basically attributing a Lockbit campaign a threat actor using Lockbit ransomware, basically attributing that activity to Evil Corp. Now, Evil Corp, of course, is a group uh, that is sanctioned by the US government due to all sorts of reasons, right? We won't get into them. But um, yeah, so Evil Corp was sanctioned. So they had to basically stop using their own ransomware because their victims couldn't pay. So they think, aha, I've got an idea. Let's use Lockbit ransomware as a service. And off they go. Now, Mandiant's, you know, outed them. Now... Mandiant's write-up is how they're using Lockbit to evade sanctions. But as soon as this has been disclosed, basically all hell broke loose because all of a sudden Lockbit can't get paid because people are feeling funny about paying Lockbit because it might be Evil Corp operators doing it and they're paying people under (laughs) sanction. So Lockbit goes ahead and claims... It puts like Mandiant on its leak site and said it hacked Mandiant and stuff, which it didn't. It was all, you know, a lie. Uh, But it was just drama, 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 drama. And uh, I was all there for it. I I loved it because (laughs) basically it was Lockbit Lockbit losing their shit because they're, you know, they've kind of been linked to a group under sanctions and they don't want to have anything to do with the Evil Corp guys. Yeah, it it is pretty funny. And, you know, watching the. People on Infosec Twitter riding the kind of roller coaster of oh my god, man, they got hacked. To oh wait, no, they didn't. Uh, it was that was just a, it was a very fun afternoon on Twitter watching that kind of wave break over it um, as things happened. The thing I took actually out of this uh, was I thought this was an interesting write up on how effective those sanctions are yes. at, at changing behaviour. Uh, and the fact that it caused them that much grief and then has subsequently caused this kind of you know uh, drama on the internet actually seemed to say that maybe sanctions were more useful than I imagined that yeah. they would be. Um, yes, yeah, second so, order grief, right? Yes, yes. The grief yeah, exactly. is now rubbing off onto Lockbit. Yeah. So that that's pretty cool. Then we should sanction more people. Yeah, so uh, if you want to explore that thought, uh, people can go check out the Seriously Risky Business newsletter, which clearly, Adam, you haven't read because that's what it was all about, <laughs> which is, well, why don't we just sanction all of them? And uh, Tom's put together some reasons why that's not a good idea. But it is certainly evidence that the sanctions against Evil Corp are working because not only have victims shunned paying them, but now other criminal groups are on the lookout because you do not want to let them use your ransomware because then you're <laughs> going to get whacked with the second order uh, sanctions hammer where people will just be scared to deal with you. So it's, a, it's essentially made Evil Corp toxic among other criminals. And that's a great result. Yeah, that's a, a wonderful outcome. And, you know... I, I don't know that that's what I thought was going to happen. I mean, now you see it playing out. Of course, it makes sense. But, um, yeah, I mean, I hope whoever came up with the sanctions thought that, you know, had that idea and is now feeling you know deeply smug about it. Yeah, nice result. <laughs> uh, Reuters <laughs> yeah. has a fantastic piece, a bit of an investigative report uh, by Angus Berwick and Tom Wilson. This one was published back on June 6th, and it's about Binance. Now, Binance is the world's largest cryptocurrency exchange, and it turns out it is an absolute cesspit full of hackers, fraudsters, and drug traffickers, as, as per the headline. So, you know, we're talking about billions of dollars worth of illicit badness happening through Binance, and it's, it's not a good look. 
No, it isn't. And it's a very, you know, it's quite an in-depth piece, a lot of sourcing, a lot of references, um, and a lot of analysis, you know, from different blockchain analysis companies of, um, you know, kind of how much money is moving around and, you know, tracking these, you know, from compromise exchanges, from individual fraud cases, through Binance and out the other side. Uh, and then a bunch of talk about, you know, the extent to which they've cooperated with law enforcement, a few people's experiences of, you know, attempting to freeze funds, attempting to, you know, have the exchange cooperate um, when investigating things. And yeah, the, the net result of this read, you know, really does make you think, you know, can you actually operate a large-scale cryptocurrency exchange and not be a total bunch of pricks? Well, I think the the trick is you kind of have to comply with all of the AML stuff that the banks do, you know, and it's <laughs> it's real funny when you read blog posts from respected people in the sort of uh, crypto space where they say, no, cryptocurrency can be saved and blah, blah, blah. And you read their ideas and all of their ideas are about making cryptocurrency more like banks, um, <laughs> which they're kind of naturally becoming... Anyway, like this next piece we've got from Kevin Collier over at NBC News. It's a great little story, actually, um, talking about how seizing Bitcoin uh, that sits in exchange-held accounts is actually something even local police in the United States are able to do now, right? Because you've got these companies uh, like Chainalysis, you've got these companies like Crystal Blockchain, right, who are providing these tools, allowing people to trace things. And of course, all of this stuff is happening in exchanges. So they can get in touch with the exchange and say, freeze that amount, right? Which is sort of like how it goes with the banks. So the way to make crypto safer is to take away its selling point of being peer-to-peer, which is just, you know, kind of nuts. Yeah, it, it is funny, isn't it, that, um, you know, we were building a, a peer-to-peer infrastructure and now we've ended up with a centralised one that has, you know, all of the problems of the original peer-to-peer thing and now all of the obligations in AML and complexity, you know, of a centralised system. So, yeah, it's a sucked-in cryptocurrency networks. But <laughs> I, I, I did like the story. I, I liked it that, um, you know, the idea that if you build tools that every, you know, police station in America can use to go and follow the money and, and, and cause some accounts to get locked, right? At that scale, you really can actually cause a real impact. Yeah. And so making tools, you know, scaling this up, making a thing that, that, you know, you can do not without necessarily having to have the FBI or the Secret Service or whoever else involved, you know, at scale, that's actually a genuinely good way to, you know, start to introduce friction. So, yeah, it's really cool. I was glad to see this. Yeah, and I imagine, uh, and I don't know uh, how easy it is to tumble these days, to tumble Bitcoins, but it's, I imagine it's harder now because the FBI did happen to arrest a whole bunch of people who ran them and charged them with money laundering, which is the sort of thing that tends to discourage others from operating similar <laughs> services. Yeah, I mean, the focus on taking out exchanges and, you know, following the money through the common points and focusing there does seem to have paid off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's still a ways to go, but, uh, yes. you know, as evidenced by that Reuters investigative report on Binance, mm-hmm, but, mm-hmm. Um, you know, they'll, uh, they'll get there. Because I think reports like that tend to lead to investigations that lead to fines, that lead to all sorts of problems. So, yeah. Let's give it a few more years. But uh, I don't know if you follow, you know, crypto asset prices, Adam, but it's not been a good week <laughs> for, for people who own this stuff. So let's see what happens. Uh, we got some advice from the United States government now looking at how Chinese state-sponsored hackers are uh, infiltrating telcos. And this is more of that sort of high-quality practical advice that we've been seeing more and more from the from US agencies lately, just really detailing tradecraft and things like that. This is the sort of stuff that, you know, it was unthinkable 10 years ago that we'd be seeing 
this type of advice coming from from US government agencies. Yeah, this is a really interesting write-up um, of a bunch of Chinese actor activity targeting, you know, telecommunications, internet infrastructure, uh, you know, lists uh, a bunch of the bugs that they are using for initial entry, which are all the sorts of things that you would expect. But there's also a bunch of great data about what they're doing after they're in, you know, including some like, you know, um, you know, config and, you know, command line input examples for like how they're setting up port mirroring on Junipers to, you know, steal traffic and, and observe data from... Um, you know, that's transiting the environment they broke it into. So a bunch of really useful stuff that, um, you know, if you're a telco and you're trying to convince people why this is important, like this is, is just great stuff to have. And as you say, the sort of thing that we just wouldn't have seen a few, even if a few years ago, mm. uh, you know, out of, you know, normally when you get like, you know, TLP white FBI jib and it just says watch out for PDF files or something. Whereas <laughs> yeah, this stuff, exactly, much right? more actionable, much more useful, yeah. much more interesting. Don't click on the links, you know. Attachments can be dangerous. Uh, shields up. Shields up, exactly. I think that's probably one of the reasons I react so badly to that is it's a, is it's a return to the dark days of, you know, show us the tools. Show us the, uh, show us the real stuff. Uh, now, we've got a, a little item here that uh, Catalan covered this in the newsletter. I haven't seen other media cover this, and it's been a little while now. Uh, 365 Data Centers, which is a major data center operator in the United States, is being sued uh, by one of its customers after a ransomware attack uh, permanently destroyed some of that customer's uh, data. So that's one that I guess we'll just keep an eye on and see if anything comes of it. Often these lawsuits go away. Uh, you know, they, they either fail or they get settled. But, you know, it's interesting given the, the, the topic and the general thrust of the lawsuit to see if it's got legs, right? Yeah, and it's also good to make sure that everyone understands that there are other consequences to being ransomed, you know, just the, other than just the ransoming bit, like that you do have obligations to your customers, you have exposure to lawsuits, like anything that increases that cost, you know, that makes it look more expensive is going to help us, you know, get funds, get resources, get buy-in from execs um, to go and do defensive work. So, yeah, it's always, you know, I, I feel bad for people who lost data. I feel bad for people getting sued for losing data, but on the other hand, we've got to improve it somehow. Lily Hay Newman over at Wired has a good piece up here about how a business email compromise just dwarfs ransomware in terms of the money it's making for uh, bad actors. And um, the thinking is that some of these ransomware gangs might actually start to pivot into BEC. I think that's entirely plausible. The money in BEC is just amazing. Like we've got another story here from Andrea Peterson uh, that uh, where, where the city of Portland uh, lost 1.4 million in a BEC scam. You know, there's no hostage negotiations or anything. You just, you know, change a few emails, send a few invoices and, and away you go. I think this is a, a, a good thing to think about because, you know, as you know, BEC has been a very long running kind of way of making money, makes a whole bunch of money, you know, ransomware maybe turns out to be the flash in the pan. You know, I think what I'm afraid of here is that, you know, you take the things that BEC is good at and you take the things that current ransomware crews are good at, you know, understanding Windows internal infrastructure moving laterally, right, and you combine them so you compromise the network and then you use, you know, your privileged position in the network to make your BEC more effective, smoother, bigger, higher value, more believable. Like, that's the thing I could totally see the Russian crews moving into, you know, using their experience and all the resources that they've gained, you know, from yeah. doing ransomware and making BEC more you know, supporting it with better technical, you know, artifacts, better technical um, capability. 
that well, seems like a good opportunity. I mean, I think it's good. We we spoke about this last time we did the show about how Asia is, you know, getting getting a big security uplift at the moment, and two um, FA is actually going to be a thing that Microsoft customers can do, uh, and you know, their users won't just get brute forced by through IMAP because Microsoft thought it was a good idea to leave it on, <laughs> <laughs> you know, stuff like that. So. So I think some of the dumb BEC stuff will go away as we see, you know, security uplift through better multi-factor, easier multi-factor authentication and whatnot. But you're quite right that some of these more, uh, some of these more skilled crews, although, you know, that's not, not to take away from some of these BEC actors, they're actually showing some skill. But if we see some real heavy operators come into this space, you're right, you know, uh, it could get pretty bad. And, and especially as you see the cash out problems, in ransomware become a lot more about moving the cash, you know, getting the cryptocurrency, turning it into cash, and then moving that around. As that gets harder, those actors are, are naturally going to have a better understanding of how to move money around once it's even out of the uh, uh, cryptocurrency ecosystem. So that part of it might be easy enough for them as, as uh, if they're doing BEC. So it is something to keep an eye on. But yeah, what do you say? Like there's, there's so many different ways to do BEC, I think is another yes, thing that's yes. scary about it, right? Yeah, I think, you know, technically assisted BSC, plus, of course, you know, BSC's uh, expertise in moving money around in non-cryptocurrency ways, like, is a thing that as we make cryptocurrency harder, right, the BEC people's expertise in that probably will also come in handy. So there's a lot of synergies. But, but my, to my point is the ransomware people are learning that already. They kind yes, of have to yes. because, yeah, because yeah. of all of this, you know, similar controls applying now to the cryptocurrency spaces to banking. Yes, yeah. So there's a lot of synergies to be leveraged. Between, yeah, maybe we'll see know, a merger. Two, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. Uh, um, oh, and, you know, speaking of, uh, you know, this is something that we, we mentioned was coming. Uh, we said that Apple and uh, Google and Microsoft were going to embrace like Fido uh, MFA. And uh, that is happening. That is happening. And uh, with the release of iOS 16, it looks like Apple's first and uh, Mac OS Ventura, they're going full Fido, man. And it looks, I can't wait. This looks amazing. They've got a thing called Passkey. Yeah, so that's their technique for doing, you know, kind of biometric back to using their existing hardware uh, authentication via WebAuthn and, and, you know, Fido style things. And yeah, you'll just be, you know, it'll just be looking at your face and or logging you into stuff uh, and it'll synchronize across your devices. And yeah, it, I mean, honestly, it sounds really good. Did you call <laughs> it Fido? Doing like Fido, Fido. Because I thought it was like Fido like the dog. I thought it was probably Fido like the dog, yes. You know, sit by Fido, cute. <laughs> cute acronym, Fido. <laughs> Little, friendly, you know? <laughs> but Fido? Really? I don't know, Fido. Maybe, uh, maybe I'm just hungry. We are recording late. <laughs> we are. I'm hungry too, actually. Uh, oh, and uh, more from the good news uh, column. Uh, MongoDB actually has some interesting stuff coming out uh, with queryable encrypted databases. And, you know, they, they did their fielding, they released their field encryption stuff a couple of years ago. Mongo actually seems to be actually trying to solve some of these problems of the security of data at rest. And uh, I'm all for it because they seem to have great ideas. But what, what did you make of this? Uh, I think it's really interesting. The, you know, this subject of having, you know, kind of data stored encrypted that you can then operate on either search or, you know, perform basic operations on like homomorphic encryption, I think they call it, where you can like kind of add two numbers together or whatever whilst they're both encrypted. Um, you know, it's 
area of academic crypto research that's been kicking around since the 80s, but practically using it and doing it in a way that, you know, is performant and manages all of those kinds of trade-offs that real use cases have, like that's been a long time coming. And so seeing it in something as big as MongoDB, um, you know, the ability to query encrypted data, um, that's, it's, I think it's going to make a, make a difference there. The question of course is one, you know, is anyone going to adopt it, especially if there's performance, you know, kind of problems? And then two, you know, encryption is one of these tools that you can't just throw blindly at something and expect it to make your security better, right? You have no. to think about how it fits together in terms of the overall architecture, in terms of the use case, in terms but of this the is, things this, you're protecting. this could be a fairly fundamental piece of a solution that currently does not exist. Yes, yeah, and I, yeah, I think, I guess where I was heading was, like, for existing systems bolting something like this in doesn't necessarily make it better. But if you're designing something new now, and of course, you know, MongoDB is available as cloud service and all sorts of, you know, kind of cloud environments. People are using it as a SaaS, you know, either directly from Mongo themselves or from someone else. Like having this available as a tool in your toolkit right now um, and designing a new system right now, this, you know, you absolutely could build things that, you know, are very different than what we would have currently. And like, yeah, I, I think you're, uh, you know, three, four, five years from now when people have understood what this means and well, how they can use it, it might actually be a, a big piece of the yeah. future kind of, you know, how we think about data storage. I think it's also one of those things that once enough people show that you can do it and it and it doesn't wreck you, you know what I mean? Yes. Like yeah, yeah. once people show it can be done, it'll just, something like this will be the new way to do things. Uh, and there'll be a tipping point and all of a sudden a lot of people will jump on board the train. I mean, you know, there's a long tail with this stuff, but I'm talking the, you know, the more forward-leaning orgs, if that makes sense. Yes, yeah, and I mean, honestly, good on MongoDB for putting in the hard work to make this an actual practical usable thing as opposed to just, you know, academic toys. Yeah, so, yeah oh, I mean, tough. we were talking about concepts like this a long, long time ago, yeah. right? Yeah, uh, yeah. so uh, now, of course... Uh, of course, there was an Atlassian uh, O-Day in Confluence. <laughs> of, course, uh, of course, like, it's a Wednesday. Of course there's an Atlassian O-Day. <laughs> um, but uh, but uh, Microsoft, like yesterday, uh, put out a – Microsoft Security Intelligence put out a tweet saying, uh, multiple adversaries and nation states are taking advantage of this and, you know, <laughs> uh, you should update. But, Adam, you got word from some of your folks uh, over there at CCX that um, – that basically this was being exploited by Chinese actors basically the same day like we yeah, found out about I mean, it. I mean, very, very rapid turnaround. A, a yeah. bug like this falls into your lap. Of course, you're going to make hay while the sun shines. So Microsoft's a little, little behind the ball there at, at being a, a week late. We don't, we don't have a week in internet time anymore. Everything happens in, you know, 10 minutes <laughs> after someone posts the bug on, you know, on a GitHub gist or something. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, if you have a, a confluence kicking around your network, um Time to roll IR. <laughs> time to roll. I mean, time to roll IR. IR was like two weeks ago, but yeah. um, better late yeah. than never. I don't know. Yeah. Well, I mean, you might find what they did. So go look. Now, oh. as best I can tell, as best I can tell, Adam, this Felina—I'll use the name—the Felina bug, the MSDT thing mm -hmm. in Office. It's still not fixed. It's still not patched. I mean, there are mitigations that you can roll out via group policy. Uh, if you're using any sort of EDR worth at salt, it will have been updated to take care of this. But I will admit to being a little bit surprised that Microsoft didn't rush a patch on this one. I mean, there must be some reason why. Like, the, it doesn't make any sense. Like, they, they, they've fixed bugs worse than this, faster than this. 
and I don't understand why there must be something there must be some reason why this is taking your time because like arbitrary command exec in a in a lol bin that you can call from an earl handler like <laughs> yeah i mean when you put it like that it, it it seems like that ought to be a thing that they could turn around and fix for relatively rapidly especially given that it's it's an internal like it's a tool that that only they are going to be calling, right? I mean, it's not like it's a general purpose end user thing that's going to have compatibility issues if they break or, I don't know, like, why? What are you doing, Microsoft? Why not? Why no patch? Why yeah. you no patch? Yeah, and it affects, you know, a lot of Office versions. I think I believe including 0365. It was funny. I remember a, a few months ago, you and I were talking about some research which was talking about, oh, these, you know, these macro bugs affect 0365 as well. And we were like, how the hell does a macro work in 0365? Thinking only about the online version. That actually did lead me to go down the rabbit hole a bit and discover things like Office Script, which is used in the hosted version. But it turns out Microsoft, just to be extra confusing, uh, give you like downloadable Office apps as part of Office 365. So it's not just an online thing. It's like the normal Word and PowerPoint and stuff, but it updates a little bit more frequently. And I don't know, it has better OneDrive integration or something. And your old school <laughs> macros work fine on that. And it's just, oh, it makes me rub my head. It makes me rub my head, Adam. Yeah, I mean, Office is just such a complicated, horrible beast. And 365 moves so quickly. I mean, all of the online stuff moves quickly. It's, yeah. It is very hard to keep track of, of where things are. And you know, what the appropriate mitigations are and, you know, where the market of the web goes red and where the group policy goes blue. And I... Yeah, it's hard. I mean, even yeah. last week, last week I had a sponsor interview with the Airlock Digital guys. We were talking about Mark of the Web, and uh, a listener, Martin Shepard, actually wrote in to correct me uh, on a couple of things. Where he said uh, a slight correction to the comment about blocking macros in documents with Mark of the Web. There's been a group policy and registry setting to do this for a number of years. What's new is that Microsoft is enabling this setting by default, uh, which is well overdue, of course. But here, again, there's more. Right? Another nuance is that last time I checked, when using Outlook. The mark of the web was put on documents sent from outside the organization, but not on documents sent internally. It also wasn't propagated if someone forwarded an external document <laughs> onto someone else internally. Now, I don't mean, and this is how confusing it is. I'm not actually sure if he means it is propagated if someone forwards or if it isn't, because that's just really confusing. <laughs> So, but I, I think what he's getting at is you can disable macros uh, for for documents containing Mark of the Web without much impact internally because if you're just sending the macro documents around on your internal mail, it's fine. But you see what I mean? My point in saying this is it is really getting quite hard to keep up with the precise details of how all of these little Microsoft things fit together. Yes, yeah, and I think Microsoft has trouble keeping track of how all the yes. little details fit together. <laughs> um, otherwise, we wouldn't end up with you know the the Felina thing. So yeah, it's it's hard, uh, and this is yeah, I, <laughs> it's such a mess that platform. Um, but on the other hand, it runs everyone's business doing everything. So yeah, I guess we better you know get on board. Losers. I remember when back back ages ago when we were talking a lot about uh, Microsoft licensing and you know someone finally sent me a spreadsheet with oh, all of the yeah. licensing tiers and it made my eyes bleed. Mm. Yes, yeah, yeah, it, that, yeah. I, that spreadsheet has also made my eyes bleed and was actually also legit useful for understanding the difference between a you know an E5 versus an E3 with a security uplift add-on. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Oh. Anyway, but I mean, I suppose they've, they're doing their best for employment. There's a lot of Microsoft specialists out there and they're actually earning their money, so that's nice. Yes, that's good. Now, 
Uh, we got our comic relief section <laughs> for the uh, for the end of the news. Uh, Lorenzo uh, over at Vice Motherboard uh, reports that uh, someone stole about five million bucks in made up money. Adam? Yes, they stole it um, from a decentralized cryptocurrency. Uh, and then the response was that the decentralized cryptocurrency just kind of like temporarily turned itself off through its centralized authority. <laughs> yeah. Which, um, well, it was a, it was a de- let's be clear, it was a decentralized cryptocurrency exchange. Right, running on a on a centrally controlled second order blockchain off the side of Ethereum. I, I mean, this sounds like something we need in our society. I mean, it's solving real <laughs> problems, Adam. It's solving real problems. It was like paying tax it, and not being able to buy your heroin. <laughs> I think. I think. I think this is like some kind of. I don't understand. Like it's a second order, second order <laughs> chain that runs on top of another chain, and I think maybe it tries to like. Is it? batch transactions so they spend less on like transaction fees on the underlying ethereum blockchain is that what happens I'm, did I, we just divide your brain by zero i think we did uh, or is this the, is this even this one maybe this is the other cryptocurrency wait no this is the other one that's not even that one it's the next one that got ripped off i got confused because all of the smear of cryptocurrencies that that had things <laughs> next smear of, so what's this one the five million let's start with the, the five, five million. <laughs> so this one is the osmosis blockchain which is a decentralized exchange. Maybe this is only on one round of Ethereum, not two. Anyway, someone stole th- their money and then... I hope they're, they're having a good end. time. I don't know. Yeah, yeah so not yeah, much yeah, to say exactly about that right. one. This yeah, is the comic much. relief section and yes. it's, it's, it's definitely <laughs> fitting the bill. Now let's talk about the... The um, other one. The other one, which is the Optimism Project. Mm-hmm. The Optimism Project apparently had something like $16 million worth of made-up tokens stolen from their... Uh, made up project right so this is the one that runs on top of the as a second order blockchain on top of ethereum and then they were getting a bunch of money from their like backing funder and then the hacker had like like maybe bc style submitted a different destination address or something anyway the 16 million that was going to fund this whole thing went missing despite them having done test transactions but because the blockchain was on top of another blockchain they hadn't verified that they could access the underlying blockchain because it's very complicated and then somebody else registered the relevant addresses or contracts i don't know what happened but either way they lost 16 million dollars and then they asked very nicely with a little bit of tooth whether or not the person who did it would would mind giving back some of the money. Uh, and then apparently they did. Yeah. So, so, you know, a weird, weird, happy ending to that story. Yes. So the person who, who did this apparently made off with 16 mil, spent 800,000, gave back 15, and that's a win in this cryptocurrency world. Like, we only lost $800,000 today. Like, that's <laughs> a good day. Yeah, <laughs> Didn't have to it. use my AK. Job well done, everybody. Buy yeah. yourselves a beer, you know? That's great. <laughs> It's like oh, the regular business where you like you ding 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 the sales bell like every day like we didn't lose more than a million dollars to somebody stealing from ding 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 we now did look, not lose look, today. Ethereum's not stupid enough. Let's talk about NFTs and mm. uh, of course the biggest marketplace for NFTs is uh, OpenSea. And let's talk about Nate Chastain, who is the former head of product at OpenSea. He's uh, he's in a bit of trouble, Adam. Yes, uh, he is accused of buying nfts before OpenSea published them and then selling them uh, at, at a great profit before they, they were are. being featured on OpenSea's website you see so he would know which nfts which apes or whatever were going to go on their front page and he bought them on the cheap and then of course because apparently when you take an ape and you put it on this website the ape becomes much more valuable 
because that's how the new economy works. That's that that is, and apparently that's insider trading. Who knew? Yes, I thought that was just the correct operation of the NFT market. So I'm sure this guy thought that as I, well. I think, I think he thought that too. <laughs> and I mean, to be honest, you can kind of see his point, right? I mean, this is just dumb ape JPEGs. I mean, but yeah, yeah. apparently he's charged with insider trading or something uh, fraud, uh, uh, rather than just operating a, a, a monkey market. So there you go. Yeah, sucks to be him. I guess sucks to be him. And guess what? What? That's actually it for this week's Ooh. news. Adam Boileau, thank you so much uh, for joining me. And uh, yeah, we're not going to do a show this Wednesday. We're going to wait and just drop in, you know, Wednesday next week. So no no double edition this week. Sorry, folks. But uh, a pleasure to chat to you, my friend. And uh, we'll catch up with you again next week. Yeah, thanks so much, Pat. Talk to you then. That was Adam Boileau there with a look at uh, the security news that we missed while I was down with the vid. With the vid. And, you know, I just came back to Australia too. I'd been in Brazil for like two months. You might notice that my voice sounds a little bit different through this microphone again. Yeah, crazy times, I'm telling you. Crazy, crazy times. Uh, It is time for this week's sponsor interview now with Colson Wilhoit and Jake King of Elastic. Uh, you may have seen some of the coverage lately about BPF Door, uh, the Linux malware. Uh, Price Waterhouse Coopers was actually uh, the company that spotted this stuff in the wild. They were the first, uh, but a bunch of teams have done teardowns on this thing now, and Elastic is one of them. And they did a really nice job of analysing this thing. And I will, of course, link through to their analysis in this week's show notes. Anyway, Colson Wilhoit and Jake King joined me to talk about BPF Door, what it is, and what makes it interesting. Uh, to start off with, here is Colson explaining what BPF door actually is. Yeah, so it, it is a backdoor payload meant for long-term persistence. So um, if you discover it in your environment, obviously you've got other things to worry about because the threat actor has been there, you know, they've come and, and possibly gone. Um, so if you find it, you know, you need to be looking elsewhere for other things. But, um, but yeah, I mean, it's a really interesting payload that uh, is very stealthy, very well thought out. Every, every little piece of it was, was well thought out in terms of its, its um, development and things like that. Um, and it takes advantage of some you know, not commonly used Linux features to function. So, and I, you know, that kind of let it hide in the wild for over five years at least without many, if any, detections. So um, you know, that's what we found I mean, just. Before we get into talking about the actual nuts and bolts of this thing, um, typically when we see Linux malware surface and being talked about, like it's pretty dumb stuff, right? Like it's pretty low grade and yeah, not like this, I guess is yeah. what I'm saying. I mean, is that your, is that, do you agree with that? No, that's, yeah, that's accurate. I mean, the majority of stuff you, you'll you probably see out there, you know, you've got coin miners is a huge one, Yeah. Um, you know. Ransom some some ransomware stuff. You've got you know some commodity, you know malware that installs and and, and does user data harvesting and stuff like that. But to come across something like this, that's this I would say advanced and you know um, developed by by a nation state is is pretty rare. Yeah, about the most interesting stuff we normally see on Linux hosts is like Magecart stuff running in PHP on a, right. you know, on a web server somewhere. And that stuff that stuff can actually get sophisticated. But yeah, we're talking about actual malware here. So let's talk through uh, BPF door. So if I understand it correctly, like this is basically a dropper 
that listens on some, uh, well, okay, so here's the thing. It can listen for a magic packet, right, or a magic string, right? So it can, uh, it can keep an eye on your web server or whatever it is, and when that magic string hits, uh, it then sets up an IP tables forward from the IP that sent the magic string directly to the malware, and then it can issue commands uh, to do stuff like uh, pull down uh, further malware and, and execute it and, and whatnot. And this is all running at root privilege. Is that about, is that about correct? Right. Yep. They already have root privilege on the box. They've deployed this. We've seen across some some samples. We've seen it deployed on some edge appliances, Linux appliances, you know, VPN appliances. We've seen it deployed on just web servers, things like that, stuff on the edge that's connected. Um, and then I would say for, for a lot of these stealthier features, you know, these are kind of from the older samples from back in like 2017, 2018, before kernel some kernel changes started happening um that yeah they they would use bpf which berkeley packet filters old 90s linux technology that allows you to use bytecode to essentially define certain sequences in incoming network traffic that you want to look for and then allows your program to act on you know those specific sequences based off of you know whatever you tell it to so, yeah, so, that, so I could head to like uh, targeturl.com slash magic string, you know, that's going to get processed by the web server, uh, eBPF's going to catch it and then trigger some actions in the background, which in this case result in a reverse shell. That's about, that's about how this thing works, right? Right. Depending, depending on the, the password that they supplied in the magic packet, which was really interesting. So they had a couple sets of hard-coded passwords in the actual backdoor binary. And depending on what it sees in that magic packet, it will instantiate one of the three functions that the backdoor has. And, and what are those you... three functions? So, so one's a reverse shell? Reverse shell. And, um, and that one doesn't involve any IP tables, firewall rule changes at all. You know, just sends back yep. a reverse shell out, out the firewall. Yep, 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 yep. Uh, bind shell, that's the really interesting one that uses some, some cool stealthy techniques. Uh, uses IP tables, and then the last one is the pingback. So it, you know, if if you supply no password, uh, it'll ping back to whatever you know server. And just say, and just say, I'm alive. Basically, is that the idea? Right. Or? Yeah, yep, yeah, yeah. So monitoring. it's the bind shell one. It's the bind shell. I mean, that sounds cool, right? So this is the IP tables one, where you hit it with a certain magic string, and then it plums through a bind shell via a, an on-the-fly IP tables rule that when your session finishes, it actually removes. Yeah, and, and what's really interesting about that, too, is so, you know, they would target a legitimate port, legitimate service that's running, let's say a web server, and then since, you know, they're using BPF to monitor the incoming traffic, when they, when they detect that magic packet has come across the wire, they immediately instantiate the IP tables rules and say, okay, stand up this high port. Now any network traffic coming in matching, you know, this magic packet sequence, pass it over to my port. And and then that establishes a connection. But it doesn't establish a direct connection on the machine, which is interesting. And, and that also is a defense evasion technique. Um, and that it, it was a <laughs> feature or bug in the Linux kernel that um, is specifically in the contract, which is responsible for um, keeping track of network connections in Linux. Um, and, and it essentially would keep that established connection open regardless of if you deleted the IP tables rules. 
So yeah. um, it, it it was a bug that they took advantage of, um, you know, until it so was... So, look, I, I think this is, this is kind of a long way of saying that these people knew what they were doing, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, they had yeah. done a lot of previous work, and they knew, you know, every step in terms of what they developed was meant to evade defenses um, and did a really good job. Well, and, there's, and there's even some some nice little tricks in terms of hiding the process name and, and whatnot, or right. I should say obfuscating the process name. Talk us through that bit. Yeah, so really interesting process name spoofing on the system. Um, the binary itself came with hard-coded values, basically a an array of hard-coded process name values. Um, and what it would do is it would essentially delete its process data environment block, um, you know, which includes its process name, everything like that, um, its appearance on the system, and then it would replace it with whatever hard-coded values it had. So it would randomly select one of those values um, and then write it into its process environment block. Um, and so on the, on the system, it, it doesn't, you know, it looks like something very random, something generic, something that you would never, would never raise alarm. Does it, does it still show, does it, is it able to obfuscate its privilege from anyone having a look? Well, if you went and looked in the slash proc directory and you were actually digging around in its, you know, stuff, you could see some kind of interesting, you know, like deleting its process environment block and deleting itself. Yeah, but what about, what about just like through PS or whatever, you know, I'm talking at a cursory glance level. Nope. Nope. You would, you would see whatever it, it wanted you to see. And that was the interesting, interesting thing is, is, you know, unless you picked up that information prior to it being changed or deleted, um, yeah, you'd, you'd see what you wanted, what it wanted you to see. And, you know, the stuff, like I said, it would not raise eyebrows. You would, Unless you were looking for this specifically, uh, you generally aren't going to find it. So nice, nice. You got to hand it to him. Uh, now, um, yeah. as the as the drill tweet uh, as the drill tweet goes. Now, uh, one more question I got on this right is that you know it is a persistence mechanism, so it's not like a primary payload. Like this is something that you use. Um, well, I guess if you if you just want to be able to have a rummage every now and then and have a shell, I guess you could use it as a primary payload. But the thinking seems to be that this is used more as a persistence mechanism. Say someone finds the real malware that you put on the box, they remove it. You can use this as a mechanism to get back on that box, maybe stand up some more tools. Um, and yet, uh, this thing does not survive reboots, which, uh, you know, I'm kind of surprised. I'm guessing that's to make it a bit more stealthy, right? Because trying to trying to stand something up that's going to survive reboots is going to stick out a bit more. Um, is, is that why? Is that why it's just, um, you know, throw it into memory and then uh, mm-hmm. try to leave no trace? Is that is that the thinking there? Yeah. And I mean, this this has changed over time due to again, some, some distro security changes, but yeah, the previous older payloads executed from dev run, dev shim, um, some of these temporary file systems that if you rebooted would just wipe the payload off the box. Um, I think a lot of that was due to where they put the persistence. A lot of times, like I said, we saw this put on high uptime machines. So you know, Linux appliances, edge edge devices yeah, yeah, that yeah. aren't going to get so shut down. So who cares, down, right? Yeah, uptime, 2,372 days. Yeah, I don't care. Right, like these things <laughs> yeah. have to be up all the time or else. So Well, and um, usually like those those high uptime boxes are usually ones people never patch anyway, right? So even if exactly, you lose your persistence, yeah. you can come so back like, the same you know, way you went in there the first place. Win-win for them. So 
Um, yeah, yeah and nice. again, like people aren't looking in those directories for executable uh, binaries like this. Like it's a it's another person, no. you know, way to hide a stealth technique. You're not going to go looking yeah. for for that stuff. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. No, I mean, you're painting a good picture here of like, well, I mean, it's stealthy until you know that it's something that you can look for, and then it's it's sounds like it's actually pretty trivial to find if you know. Uh, uh, what to look for. Look, we're also joined by Jake King, uh, who uh, works with you over there at Elastic. Uh, Jake participated uh, in this in this write-up as well. I understand you're not the only companies who've, who've looked at this. I mean, this is a sample that was turned up by PwC. Uh, CrowdStrike's got a write-up as well. Yours is good. Uh, yours is yours is very good, and of course we're going to link through to that uh, in in the show notes. But Jake, um, I wanted to bring you in on this because. You know, I just this thing's been kicking around in the wild for five years and was only surfaced recently. Do you think this is the tip of the iceberg? Do you think there's a lot more of this sort of stuff kicking around in Linux land uh, than we like to think? Or do you think high-quality Linux malware is still somewhat rare and, and mostly the domain of APT actors? You know, I, I think I think there's two there's two kind of interesting takes on this one, Pat. You know, we we aren't seeing a lot of this stuff, and some of that comes down to observability. Some of it comes down to the stealthiness and the maturity of the payloads that are being built. Um, but it also comes down to the class of workloads that we're looking at, right? You know, we're looking at cloud systems. They're not part of everyday observation tools in a lot of companies that we we, we work with that we see. Um, and, and you know, that yeah, is, so this that sounds is, this sounds like the sort of thing that's going to turn up on someone's Barracuda mail yeah. filter or whatever, right? Yeah, yeah. O- opaque, typically opaque systems. And I think when you when you think about um, you know when you think about the challenge of of trying to defend against you know advanced payloads, hard to find. Hard to monitor, you know, we deal with the same problems that many of ad- the adversaries building these tools do as well. Performance, uptime, monitoring, persistence, you know, the, the, the tools themselves play, uh, play a large part in, 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 in sometimes why this stuff is hard. But, you know, I think it, just to go back to your original question, uh, you know, I think there's a lot of this out there. Uh, I think we're not seeing it. And, and seeing payloads like BPF door dwell for five years be present in networks and in systems and just not be picked up all that easily uh, tells me that there's things going on that, you know, we're, we're probably not going to be comfortable with in a few years. And, you know, a lot of but that as is... But as you pointed out, though, like visibility into cloud systems is, you know, it's a lot better than it was even a few years ago because oh, people, are, people are using tooling now, right? So if, it's, yep. if it starts popping up in cloud workloads, it's the sort of stuff that's going to surface, right? So in those, in those critical production environments. But as you pointed out, right, like all those Linux appliances that aren't necessarily getting updated very often, like that's... So that's where we're seeing... That's where you yeah, think this stuff is, right? D- definitely some stuff there. You know, I think I, I think persistence mechanisms and, and ways into Linux boxes aren't any different than, than than say your 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 typical kind of you know desktop endpoint. They're just it's just slightly different in in, in the mechanisms that adversaries use. They're all yeah. going to go after exploits. They're all going to go after the stuff that's commoditized, uh, and then they're going to try and persist and, and and maintain access. I think I think where the where the nuance is is you know actions on objective, right? You know where it's going to change after the fact. What are they going to do once they're on the system are they going to extort you are they going to run coin miners and and try and mine some crypto that's yeah. worthless uh, wh- wh- what are they going to try and do um and really a lot of the time that 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 this stuff goes wrong you know we're, we're noticing because they've started to get loud about what they're doing not because yeah. we've got you know incredible instrumentation well, if you, if you want to do something useful you're going to have to make a bit of noise unless you're really patient yeah. really well funded and you, you know you, you got a lot of time i mean if you had to ask me uh, you know, where are you going to find the sweetest Linux payloads? 
you know, there's an obvious answer in my head and that's the telcos, right? Because that's where you're going to have all sorts of APT crews. You know, telcos are a Linux heavy environment. You're not really talking about cloud workflows, you t- it, cloud workloads. You're talking about a lot of creaky old Linux yep. stuff that yeah. a lot of people want to get access to. Yeah. And um, that's where I would have guessed you'd, you'd, you'd see a lot of it. But mm. I, I, I have a hard time imagining that this stuff is going to rise to the level of like, uh, you know, anywhere near what we see in, in Windows land. It's, it's going to be much more focused groups who want to use this stuff. I, you know, I think, I think you're right. There, there, are, there, are, there are classes of attack that will typically be, be seen within these kinds of systems. And look, I, I will say that the, the toolkits that adversaries are able to use, the, the templatization of a lot of the types of malware out there, a lot, of, a lot of this stuff is pretty, you know, by the book a lot of the time. And um, most of the mechanisms we saw in, uh, you know, in, in these BPF door payloads that, that, that Colson and I and the team at Elastic went through, um, you weren't anything incredibly crazy sophisticated when you can no, contrast no, it to... No, but it's, it's not the point, is it? It's, yeah. put to, it's put together with some knowledge, right? Like exactly. that's reading through, reading through yeah. your blog post. It's like who, the person who wrote this isn't some generic hand, you know, because this has been tied to China, right? So yep. we'll just say that. Yep. But this isn't some generic hand at some Chinese intelligence agency who's been tasked to throw together a, a Linux package right like this is someone it's just so clear given the number of little tricks in it like this is like one of my old 90s mates would write it like this you know this is what adam boileau would write this is (laughs) yeah yeah exactly and and and, and, you know that that kind of goes to uh, the fact that you know you've got to have the same kind of folks researching it you've got to actually be looking at this stuff and you've got to know what you're looking for in a lot of cases and you know, there, there, there are a growing number of folks that are starting to, 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 to do research on exactly these topics. And, you know, I'm excited to see where that takes us. You know, we've, we've got a, a relatively small team at Elastic doing some of this Linux-specific work, but that team is growing pretty quickly. And, it's, and, and the sophistication of the things that we're capable to do to analyze these payloads, to do these write-ups, to, to provide signatures, to do kinds of things like this, it's something that gets me super excited. You know, it's not something we had the ability to do at scale at CMD, uh, and with Elastic, it's you know, it's a it's a bit of a different story. Yeah, yeah. So you got uh, resources, man. They're great. You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, it's yeah, fantastic. And I guess um, it's interesting. I think. Look, I think something interesting you said before is that you know where these sort of things are turning up. I think that it's good that we've got some better tooling, uh, not just from you guys. Like, there's there's quite a few companies now making sensible security tooling for Linux. But as you pointed out, man, like that's not the stuff that's going to find its way onto your blinky light box that you bought in 2008 right and so it's party time it's party time for the advanced linux uh yeah people aren't going to be spotting these uh, uh for a while but Cruiser, who knows Cruiser we might be start out there in for a while that's right we might start seeing some some interesting stuff in the cloud uh eventually but you know hopefully it'll be caught a bit quicker than in five years all right jake king colson wilhoit thank you so much uh for joining me to have this conversation very interesting stuff as i said i'll link through to the blog post in this week's show notes cheers Thanks, Pat. Thanks, Pat. That was Colson Wilhoit and Jake King of Elastic there. Big thanks to them for that. That is it for this week's show. I will be back next week with more security news and analysis. But until then, I've been Patrick Gray. Thanks for listening.